Wayfair's biggest sale of the year is here. It's Wayday. Right now, you can score up to 80% off at Wayfair. Save on sofas and cookware, dining sets and rugs and beds, wall art, bar cards, floor lamps, sailing fans, home decor, all things outdoor, and way more. All up to 80% off right now. Plus, everything ships free. And flash deals are launching all Wayday long. Don't miss Wayfair's biggest sale of the year. Shop Wayday right now for May 6th at Wayfair.com. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me as always, well, he's simply one of the best in the biz, so I refer to him as the Barry Lurd of podcasting. He is the captain. They call me Lurd the Turd. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today, we are drinking War Elephant by the fine people over at Rushing Duck Brewing Company. Garage grade three and three quarter bottle caps out of five. War Elephant is a double IPA. It's hoppy, malty, and I would say light, light citrus notes. And as one might expect from the powerful name, it is a powerful beer, big flavor, and a high ABV. This powerful brew is brought to you by this powerful crew. First up, we have Alex, and we are going to say that Alex is in parts unknown. Which is very fitting because Alex is a truck driver. We have a lot of truck drivers that listen to the show. And Alex says, our little garage show makes the miles fly by. So shout out to Alex and all the trucker friends out there. Stay safe on the roads, my friends. And in real parts unknown, we have... We have Christy who says each day she does some garage time because there's nothing like a little homicide story and the captain to get you through her day. Mm-hmm. Or get her me. through her day. Call me, girl. Call me. And in the Bronx, we got Michael. Big shout out to you, Michael. And in that state up north, we have Rachel and Grand Rapids, and we also have Jill from Holt. And a big we like you, Jib, to Gia in Lakeland, Florida. And a cheers, mates, to Stephen from Suwanee, Georgia. And last but not least, a shout out to David in the CSL Knoxville Night Shift. Yeah, and a big shout out to anybody rocking the night shift. So thank you, everybody, for all the cold beers for this week's show. If you want to help us out with next week's show, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. And that's enough of the business. Gather around. Grab a chair. Grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
We've done three episodes on this case, and today makes four. And sometimes, Captain, that just works out for me. <laughs> it works out well for me, well for my ostrich brain that I'm walking around with, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes, in most of the case, this is the case, this is the scenario that we cover a new case each week. So we have but five, maybe seven days to research it all, work through it, record it. It's like a damn tornado. Mm-hmm. Well, these four-part cases are a little different. We get just about two weeks to kind of tear through them and maybe see what's going on a little clearer. So when we are provided with that luxury, I like to kind of take a look at it and form an opinion after I've digested as much information as I can. Uh, rather, so sometimes for me, it's like comparing uh, following a trail of breadcrumbs rather than reading a choose your own adventure book. Okay. So here, and, and I like to do this when I think it applies. And what I'm looking for is this, I'm looking for something that seems to be the truth in regarding my opinion of what I think could have happened to Jeanette De Palma. So going back to our, our victim here, and as we discussed our victim, what kind of person is she? Was she a wild child or was she a good girl? We heard everything all over the shop there, right? The witnesses, as we said, all over the shop when it came to her character and her personality. Yes, a lot of speculation. Then when we get to where she was, where she was last seen, walking, and and then some dispute about whether she was went to a house or not. Mm -hmm. So I want to get into some things that I found a little strange, and, and when it boils down to Maybe what Jeanette was up to on that day, on that, on that day that she went missing. So, so what can we, what can we learn by her behavior from what witnesses has told us from, from what people have told us she was planning to do that day? The first thing we hear is that she was going to go to a friend's house, but the way that it really boils down captain is that it sounds to me like she was trying to get out of going to the friend's house. She woke up that day. She called her friend. She was supposed to be there in the afternoon. And she said, you know what? She told her friend, I can't go to your home. My mother will not let me. I have some cleaning and some chores that I'm supposed to do. So therefore I will not make it later. Her friend says, well, no, we've set up these plans with these boys. And I only set up these plans because you told me you were going to be here. So you have to figure this out. You have to be here. She says, okay, I'll hitchhike a ride. I'll hitch a ride and make it to your house. I'm doing a little assuming here, Captain, but I'm assuming she was trying to ditch her friend because then she tells her mother that she is going to said friend's house. Right. Mother grants her permission all of a sudden. And the mother, she even offers her to give her a ride to that friend's house. Yeah. And the Jeanette says, no, no, it's a, it's a nice day out. I'm going to walk and I'm going to go to the train station. Then we see Jeanette asking her sister if she would like to walk with her, stating to her sister that she was going off to see a boy. And her sister recalls even the name Tommy, but knows nothing else of this boy or this person named Tommy. The sister says no and has plans of her own and won't be walking with Jeanette that day. From there, Jeanette phones another friend looking for, and this part is not clear, but either looking for a a ride from her friend 
or for her friend to accompany her on foot. Regardless, she didn't seem to be looking to go alone to me wherever she was heading that day. And the thing that I strongly question here is Jeanette's intent. What was she, was she really planning to go to her friend's house? She failed at the attempt to cancel those plans, tells her sister that she's going somewhere else and then turns down a very convenient ride from her mother. If you're in a hurry to get to your friend's house that day, you take the ride from your mother. Right. If you might be going somewhere other than where you told your mother, you don't take the ride. You were going, you turn down the ride. I think we might be looking at a strong possibility that she either had other plans that day that we are unaware of, or she wanted to go visit somebody else other than that friend, maybe even a boy. Right. If she did have plans to go out, I I really wish someone could come forward or someone could piece together where and with whom those plans were to be. Yeah, but you can speculate a little bit. I mean, based off what the sister said, Mm -hmm. Uh, she's going to go see this boy. I would really like to know why that person never came forward to tell us that they had plans with Jeanette that day, but yet she never arrived Mm -hmm. because then you got, you got to put a big circle around that person. So I strongly think that one of two scenarios played out something like this. She went somewhere and met someone and they spent some time together that day. And she went off walking to God knows whose house. But while walking, she accepted a ride. Now, here's my thought on this, Captain. Whether she went searching for a ride or whether she accepted a ride. In my opinion, this would be from someone she knew or from someone that she may have wanted to know. Mm -hmm. And I throw that in there uh, for for a couple of reasons, okay? One thing that we heard about Jeanette when we talked about her personality and her victimology, let's say, was there was a big question about hitchhiking. There was half the, half the people said she would never hitchhike. We hear her tell her friend she was going to hitch a ride that day. Then we have the other people saying, yeah, it was pretty common. You know, we did it. She did it. Everybody did it. What I did hear time and time again, the one thing that didn't seem to be as much confusion as whether she would hitch a ride or not, most of the people that were saying that if she were to hitchhike, Jeanette was not stupid, that she was not going to take a ride from someone she didn't know. Okay. But I threw in the possibility of someone she maybe wanted to know. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is could an older boy have slowed down and offered the girl a ride. And what I mean by this, I don't mean like a 30 year old man comes along in his, you know, in his dad wagon and he's like, hey, you want to you want to ride? You know, Jeanette's 16 years old. Mm-hmm. She might have accepted a ride from, we know you had to be 17 and a half in those days to have your license. What if she got in the car with somebody that was 18 or 19, 20, 21 even? Someone mm-hmm. that looked to be in her age group. Someone that looked the role of somebody that might run in one of her circles or her friend's circles. This is there's a very suspicious story here to me. And before I get into it, I do want to do a a quick mention of something that I was 
thinking about on the way over here, Captain, and I wanted to get your opinion on this. And this will play a role in in the later part of my opinion of what might have happened to Jeanette De Palma. One thing we didn't talk about yesterday, it didn't hit me until this morning, but when we talked about Red, the houseless man that lived in the woods, mm-hmm. one thing that, that we didn't discuss was, remember when they found Jeanette's body in Sept- on September 19th, 1972, they were looking through the woods. They were combing that area. They arrive at the cliff known as Devil's Teeth, and they find her body up there. The strange thing to me is like, I kind of almost picture this as like I'm watching like Law and Order or Criminal Minds or something like that, you know, where they find a body. They're like, oh, we got this body. And then you hear them start talking. It, it could be a female. She's been here a while. And if this were a TV show, then off in the distance somewhere, you would hear another officer going, Captain? Yes. Somebody's living over here. We got somebody living in the area. Right. I'm I'm wondering why, you know, there was so much suspicion about this red man, about the, the houseless guy. Why so much suspicion about a guy that they didn't seem to, they didn't seem to come across his dwelling when they were out looking for her body. Right. Like, wouldn't that be like the biggest of red flags to you if you happen to find a body in that area? Maybe that's why it wasn't, he wasn't looked into that much. Maybe that's why, yeah, maybe that's why they t- spoke with him briefly and then cleared him and let him go. But anyway, the, there's, a, there's a weird story within this big story that I find very strange. And that's the story of the 21-year-old dude that we talked about yesterday uh, that goes by the name of Terry Rickle. Terry Rickle was the guy that alerted police in October about the man, Red, that's living in the woods near where the body was found. Right. What I find suspicious about his story is, is, is it possible that he's he's giving the police some kind of false lead is is he going to the police department this would be about the same time that the stories from the newspaper regarding the murder and death of Jeanette De Palma start disappearing from the newspaper mm-hmm. and we do know that on on some occasions somebody that either has information or somebody that's guilty of a horrible act will sometimes interject themselves into the investigation why cuz they want to know what's going on with the investigation. What better way than to go down to the police department and give them some potentially false lead. You could send them off your trail and figure out what they're doing possibly at the same time. I find his story a little suspicious in that there's, there's a portion of his story that we left out yesterday. And it's this, he seemed to one, know that red lived in that area Two he seemed to be able to point out to the police that he believed that, that red had left that area sometime shortly after Jeanette's body would have been placed there. Mm-hmm. His, his reasoning for knowing about red and for knowing about, you know, knowledge about the area and maybe even red's timeline is this. He states that some of his friends would on occasion spy on this red character. And the reason why they would spy on him is because sometimes, remember, he was getting paid in cash. And a lot of times he would come back to his little campsite, let's call it, and he would bury the cash or he would hide his money in different places. And supposedly these, you know, I don't have the ages or the names of these guys that he tells this story about to the police. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming they're roughly his age. So let's say men that they would be over the age of 18. 
that these guys are watching this red guy hide his money. And then when he's off, when he goes off to work or when he's not in the area, sometimes he would go grocery shopping. They would come up and steal his money. Possibly a reason why he left the area. Yeah. Very good point. If somebody keeps showing up while you're gone or in the middle of the night and stealing your money, you might leave the area just for that purpose. The thing I'm getting at is I don't know how much suspicion or how much shade to throw on this Terry Rickle. Maybe there's none that needs to be thrown on him at all. I'm just getting at that I find his story a little suspicious, and I'm also wondering if the police, upon hearing his story and hearing the detectives hearing his story, now we know we they followed the red angle, mm-hmm. and they started looking into that, and they started looking for this man known only by the name of Red. I'm wondering if how much they checked into this Terry Rickle guy or his friends. And furthermore, if Terry Rickle knows so much about the area, about that specific area where her body was found and her, his friends are on occasions watching the area, how come they didn't see anything suspicious? How come they didn't have anything more suspicious to report about this? I, I find the, the whole story either made up maybe it's just made up maybe he had maybe he had some reason to not like this red guy or maybe he was just scared of this guy that lived in the woods and he kind of goes oh i read in the paper they found her body there i think that's where that guy lives maybe yeah. it was just something maybe it's something as loose as that or yeah maybe, or a lot of people can't understand other people's lifestyles so they treat them like they're less than human mm-hmm. when it's just a different choice of lifestyle yeah or or maybe it's something more sinister to inject yourself into the investigation, try to figure out wh- what direction the investigation is taking, and maybe even provide them with some kind of false lead. Well, and there's some speculation that she got in a car with somebody that maybe she knew, right, or or was an acquaintance of. And so is there any evidence that she knew this uh, Terry Rickle? Well, there there was speculation that she would only get into a car of somebody she knew. and I, And I actually believe that I believe that she got into a car, whether she was offered a ride or was asking for a ride. And I do believe it was probably somebody she knew. Um, now there is no proof. There's no evidence to suggest that she knew Terry Rickle or did not know him. We, we, we don't know this. Um, and the you whole, just find his, you know, his story pretty fishy. Well, I just really, yeah, I find his story questionable. Um, to the point where I just wanted to offer that up for food for thought, you know, as food for thought, I don't necessarily, was he involved or was his friends involved? It's possible, but it's probably not super likely when you look at the whole spectrum of things. Now, the reason why I think that she knew she would only get in the car with somebody she knew or got into the car of somebody she knew is this because of where her body was found. She's found on top of this cliff and we have investigators. We have detectives and police officers that found her that day that were part of the search that said that they had slipped several times when they tried to make it up to that cliff, that they had fallen, that some of them couldn't even make it to the top of that cliff. Right. And then when they removed her body from there, the fire truck had to come in and, and park itself at the base of the, of the cliff and shoot the ladder up. To, to use the ladder and form this this weird, almost kind of conveyor belt of getting her out of there. Mm-hmm. They had to put in lots of man hours and time right. to so getting her out of there. What, what you're getting at is that 
It would be hard for somebody to carry her up there. It's hard for somebody to kill her than carry her up there. I so, almost think that she went up there with willing, somebody. Yeah. Either somebody she knew or somebody she trusted. Things she, got out of hand. She followed somebody up there, and for whatever reason, I think that that person probably strang- strangled her and left her there. And I think the reason, a, a big portion of the reason why this is not has not been solved is f- there's actually, I, I believe, many reasons why this has not been solved. And the first one of those is I would state that they didn't investigate her disappearance. Remember, they it was reported as a runaway. And we don't know if it was the parents that reported it that way or the police. Right, because they've the parents changed their story on that as and, well. And the police say that it was the parents that called it in as a runaway. However, we see another case. Yes, it's in another county, but it's the same time period of a family calling in their daughter missing and the the police are the ones that said no, she's a runaway. Right. So this could have happened in Jeanette's case. And the problem with that is, and we got into this. It's a lot, Captain. You and I agreed. It, there's some similarities to this and to the the serial case that was covered in their first season, where you're you're asking Adon Syed's case. Yeah. Thank you. You're asking teenagers to tell you their whereabouts and what they were doing and who they were with six weeks ago. They weren't really investigating Jeanette De Palma's case until after her body turned up six weeks and one day after she was missing. Yeah. If they would have treated it like a disappearance or an endangered disappeared case rather than a runaway, they would have been speaking to her friends the day after or two days after, and they might be able to tell you where they were, what they were doing, who they were with. Do you believe this uh, crime is uh, satanic or occult-like in, in any nature? No, I actually think that it's, it probably just goes with the times, um, that it's, you know, the early seventies. The thing is with this whole satanic panic, one thing that people fail to recognize is a lot of this was brought about by Charles Manson and his, his crew. Yeah. Because when you hear this, this horrible story of these horrible people that went in to a home and it's technically a home invasion. They go into this home and they terrorize and kill these people out in California, painting blood on the walls. That was the biggest news of, of it's some of the biggest news of last century. Yeah. And to hear that, and that spreads across, it goes, it happened in California and it spreads across the Bible belt and the news there and all the way to the East coast. And then you have parents and police everywhere where they start to think, if it happened out there, this is the new wave of crime. This is the new wave of criminal. And all these teenagers with their long hair and they're all hippies and they're smoking drugs. This is what we're going to see in the future. And I think a lot of times when you had either teenage victims or teenage perpetrators of crimes, of murders and such, that all of a sudden Satan got involved. All of a sudden witchcraft got involved. And it it happened for a lot of... For, in many cases in the seventies and many cases in the eighties and even up until the nineties, it's, it's just something I I just don't see that being a piece of this case. And I think a large part of that is we don't know what happened to her and she's found at a location called the devil's teeth. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. 
it is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved 
and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Cheers, mates. And we're very happy to be with author Jesse Pollock. He was one half of the author duo that wrote the book Death on the Devil's Teeth, The Strange Murder That Shocked Suburban New Jersey. So, Jesse, since the book has been released for a couple of years, where are you guys at currently on this investigation? Well, the interesting thing with uh, Mark and I is, you know, with the benefit of there being a magazine, the letters have kind of never stopped coming in. Uh, the first letter they received about the case was in 97 or 98. And it's just been a stream of them every year since then. So even with the book coming out in 2015 and a lot of things being answered, um, with all of the additional questions that the book has opened up, we still have been getting all these letters um, regarding suspects, um, the occult connection, possible related cases. And, you know, sometimes they turn out to be nothing, but other times we found some very, very interesting things. Talk about the letters, Jesse. What were some of the more interesting items that came out that were presented to you through these letters? One of the most interesting things that we've heard from a reader so far um, involves the supposed occult objects found around her body. Now, like you guys discussed in episodes one and two, it's not really clear what was found around her, but the general consensus is there were sticks and stones. They may have been arranged. They might not have been. They may have just been a cross and some stones above her head. They may have been a trapezoidal perimeter of logs, which appeared, that description appeared in the newspapers. So, Assuming that one, that newspaper description was true, the trapezoidal coffin-shaped perimeter, you know, we just thought, okay, it's supposed to look like a coffin. And then we got an email from a guy about a year after the book came out, and he was saying, oh, I think you guys should know this. The trapezoid is the most satanic symbol in the Church of Satan. And I was like, I, you know, I researched Levian Satanism and even Hollywood Satanism, you know, Satanism light, whatever you want to call it, all kinds of Satanism while writing Death on the Devil's Teeth with Mark. 
And I never saw the trapezoid come up. But then I did some digging based on what this guy said. And sure enough, there were interviews that LeVay gave in the 80s and the 90s where he does say that, you know, the most occult object, you know, shape, whatever, is the trapezoid. You know, if you look at the back of the dollar bill, what do you see? A pyramid with the top cut off. That's a trapezoid. And basically, if you go through the literature that LeVay put out, it boils down to the shape of a trapezoid is used to open up a portal between the living and the dead, which, you know, if you believe the sensational articles and headlines about Jeanette's murder being a satanic sacrifice, it does make sense that she would be laid out in a alleged portal between the living and the dead. So that was one that kind of made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up because the whole time I was writing the book with Mark, it was oh, it's just supposed to look like a coffin. You know, it, it, you know that's, you know, the, the big thing, the big spooky thing. Oh, it's coffin iconography. But then to get an email from someone and have it pan out that there is literature to back it up, that no, this shape is important in Levian Satanism. And it's, uh, it, it, it's supposed to literally open up a portal between the realm of the living and the dead. I mean, it's, it's really chilling to think of. There's a lot of fishy rumors about Jeanette's case files going missing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, that that was the biggest thing um, in the whole lore of this case for years. It was the big shocking reveal. You know, anytime Mark would dig into the case back in the early 2000s before he and I teamed up, he would always hit this brick wall of, oh, no, you know, the Springfield police say, the case file was destroyed when Hurricane Floyd rolled through in 1999 and flooded a, a great percentage of Union County. So, you know, we figured, OK, well, I guess the story kind of ends there with the files. You know, it's it's not uncommon to hear something stupid like that. Files are kept in a basement somewhere in an in a area that's prone to flooding. It's unfortunate. Um, There were a lot of accusations and letters that the magazine got that it was a police cover-up but these things do happen so whatever we soldiered on and then halfway through writing the book somewhere around 2013-2014 we spoke with a retired guy from the Springfield Police Department who um, later worked in the detective bureau and he told us straight up Oh, well, when I got to the Detective Bureau in the early to mid late uh, early to mid 80s, I asked for all of the cold cases so I could brush up and two were missing. The uh, Manoff murder, another unsolved murder in Springfield that was in, I think, 76 or 77 and the De Palma file. He goes, that file was missing as early as 1984. So no, Hurricane Floyd did not destroy it. So then we had this this kernel of hope, like, OK, maybe it's misplaced or maybe there's a whole nother story here that there was some sort of a cover up. But either way, you know, on the record, you know, anytime we would send a Freedom of Information Act request or an Open Public Records Act request, the the bottom line from Springfield was, no, it was destroyed in Floyd. And even if it wasn't, we wouldn't let you see it. It's an open case. The big development that came this past year, you know, two years after the book was released, was I subscribed to a lot of newspaper archives online, you know, newspapers.com, newspaperarchive.com, Ancestry, you know, whatever. 
And I get these email alerts sometimes saying, hey, you know, um, a whole bunch of articles have been added to the digital database about John List. Um, come check them out. So I logged in and sure enough, there were like 50 new John List articles, saved them just for the, you know, the sake of them being interesting. And then I thought, well, hey, when I checked this database a couple years ago, there was virtually nothing on Jeanette. There was a little bit on Joan Kramer, the other girl that was murdered the same week, the only a couple towns over, but virtually nothing on Jeanette. So let me search her again. And sure enough, there were a half dozen new articles that were added. And there was stuff about Red, the guy in the woods. We found the correct spelling of his last name. It's Kira, not Kier. So now we have that alley to go down. And it mentioned this uh, this wanted poster for him that was drawn up. And it said uh, something like 7,000 of them were distributed around Union County. And that was a big, big thing because, okay... If 7,000 of these were distributed around Union County, that means it's a public document. It was already released to the public by the police department, which means the prosecutor's office or the Springfield Police Department or any other investigative agency that handled the case could not hide behind, oh, no, we're not releasing it to the public because it's an open case. They had already released it 40-something years ago. So I filed a brand new request, and within three weeks, they found the original wanted flyer and mailed me a copy. So it definitively proved that while, yes, maybe the case file that Springfield had was destroyed sometime in the 80s or the 90s, depending on who you want to believe, a copy still exists in the Union County Prosecutor's Office. And we've seen some interesting twists and turns since then. But either way, the bottom line is the files exist somewhere. And now it's just a matter of they won't let the public or or journalists or anyone else for that matter see them. But there's also rumor that the Joan Kramer case files were missing as well. That was another strange development. I sent the uh, the Open Public Records Act request for them probably in 2013. Um, and it's a different county that handled it um, because she was while she was found in Union, which is Union County jurisdiction, um, she disappeared from Essex County. So they treated it as a kidnapping first because she was picked up while hitchhiking. So Essex County Prosecutor's Office handles that case. When I sent them the Open Public Records Act request, they kept sending me every two weeks these letters saying, hey, hold on. We're still trying to find the file. You got to understand, it's 40-something years ago. We have a lot of different storage facilities. Um, hang in there, though. We're going to find it for you. And I got three or four of those. And then finally, probably like five months after I first, you know, sent the request in, they came back and said, listen, we're so sorry. We checked every storage facility we have diligently. We checked our microfilm archives. We checked everywhere. We, we don't know where the file is. We're presuming it's lost or destroyed. You know, best of luck to you. So as far as a, a original documentation or paperwork on the Kramer case, there's nothing. Um, all we had to go on while chronicling it for the book was the interviews that we conducted with the people from the prosecutor's office from back then. Um, we interviewed her brother and sister um, people that knew the prime suspect in that case and the newspaper articles. Th that was it. 
So even if, um, say, tomorrow someone walked into the, uh, the, the police station in South Orange and said, I killed Joan Kramer. Here's why. Here's how. And here's something that proves that I did it beyond a reasonable doubt. They would have a hell of a time prosecuting it, if at all. Because her her files are missing from the prosecutor's office. That's that's the investigating body that would uh that would handle it should a arrest be made. So, I mean, I guess that case is dead in the water over there, as far as they're concerned. And do you have any updates on the Joan Kramer case, as far as what you're working on? Well, the interesting thing about that was, you know, when we first talked to the siblings, they had mentioned, oh, well, you know, there was there was this guy that was arrested for it a few years later. Did you guys know about that? And we said no, because we were, you know, we were not going digital with this until later. We were old fashioned with getting the information for this case. You know, I spent many hours along with Mark in various public library basements going through microfilm reels. And the uh, the Kramer case, much like the De Palma case, just kind of fizzles out at the end of 1972 on these reels. So, you know, we figured, okay, well, I guess they never found anything else. But her family, you know, Joan Kramer's family told us, no, there was a guy arrested for it three years later, this guy named Otto Nilsson. He was an accountant living in Maplewood, uh, which is the next town over from South Orange. He used to live in South Orange as well. And um, they, uh, they eventually found an eyewitness that put him at the scene when Kramer uh, got into a car hitchhiking and they tried him for it. And I said, well, what came of it? And they said, well, the, the prosecution didn't ver- do a very good job of, of presenting the case. And he went free. The jury, you know, acquitted him. And I said, well, whatever happened to this guy? And she said, well, a couple years later, he held some doctors hostages at a VA hosp- uh, hospital with a rifle. And he was, uh, you know, he was condemned to an asylum. And he, that's where he died. He died in a mental institution. So, you know, we started looking into this guy, you know, the, the specter of Otto Nilsson. And, you know, as far as we could find, we could not find anything that put him in Springfield the day that Jeanette De Palma went missing, you know, only a week before Joan Kramer. But we could not find anything that didn't put him there. Because he worked for himself. You know, he was a certified public accountant. He ran his business out of his apartment. So he was he could come and go as he pleased. There were no there were no employment records or anything like that to show that he could not have done it. But the interesting thing was um, some when he went to trial, a lot of his um, his previous hospitalizations for his mental illnesses came out in these articles like dates tangible dates like you know he was he was in this hospital from then till then and then again from then until then yada 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 and when we put them on the timeline we realized every time this guy was let out of the mental institution girls would turn up dead in new jersey strangled left face down in the woods and then the killings would stop as soon as he got committed again so he was a very, very interesting suspect that we worked with for for years and we considered to be the number one suspect for a time. And then after the book came out, I got a phone call from a prosecutor 
who uh, used to work in Essex County. And he told me, he goes, hey, I just wanted to call you because I was picking up some summer reading for a, a, a little trip I was going on. And I'm in Barnes and Noble and I see your book and I go, oh, well, that looks interesting. And I'm flipping through it. I'm like, oh, wait, I worked this case, the, the Kramer case. And he goes, yeah, you mentioned Nilsson. Nilsson is a very interesting suspect, but I don't think he killed Kramer. And I'm like, okay, so there was another suspect. And he goes, oh, yeah, there were a couple other. And so he tells me all about this guy who had been arrested for picking up girls uh, hitchhiking and, um, you know, screwing with their cars, kind of like uh, the Zodiac did in the Kathleen Johns case, and picking them up and raping them. One he was uh, acquitted for at trial, another one he was convicted. So we had this other suspect that we were looking at, and then sure enough, when this this new newspaper article dump came on newspapers.com, all these articles that were not available to us when we were writing the book, there's the guy. And all of this stuff mentioned about him being a uh, a suspect in the Kramer case. So now, in the wake of the book uh, initially being published, Mark and I now have another suspect that we're currently looking into to see if we can account for his whereabouts when Jeanette was killed. And when these other girls, like the ones up in North Bergen, if we can account for his whereabouts to see if he's a viable suspect in those murders as well. So, I mean, it's this definitely is not a situation where, oh, okay, the book's out, you know, that's our take on it, we're done. The case has never stopped moving, and it's never stopped moving in incredibly interesting directions that can be backed up with the testimony of retired detectives who worked the case, or newspaper archives that we did not have access to, or case files that have suddenly been released to us. It's, it's been incredibly interesting. So at the end of the day, do you believe Jeanette's murder was satanic in nature or a cult murder? And, you know, I've been wrestling with that question for five years now. It, it just honestly, it teeter totters back and forth when we were, you know, hell bent on this being Nilsson. When all of the, the, the cards seemed to line up that he had not only killed John, uh, that he had not only killed Joan Kramer, but he had also killed Jeanette De Palma. We were like, okay, this is satanic panic. <clears throat> this is the New York Daily News and the Post trying to sell sensational headlines based on some things that her pastor, Jim Tate, had said in interviews. You know, that was kind of it for a little while. We're like, okay, it was it was, a, it was an undiscovered serial killer and some, you know, goofy sensational headlines. But then we heard from one of Jeanette's friends, oh, no. There was a guy that used to pick her up when she would go hitchhiking. This guy, Mike. And um, I knew him. He was like a year older than me. And we went to the same high school. And there was a little bit of romantic interest there. And I had him over my house one time for a date. And he leaned in to kiss me and saw my crucifix and said, No, sorry, I can't kiss you while you're wearing that. I'm a warlock. And he went on about how he had all of these occult beliefs. And she was like, I know for a fact that Jeanette had gotten into his car a few times while hitchhiking. So I went back to Cindy, Jeanette's sister, and I said, hey, did a guy used to, you know, uh, you know, an older guy in high school, guy with a, a muscle car used to pick you and your sister up while you would hitchhike? And she goes, yeah, 
it's this guy named Mike. So I'm like, oh my God, you know, you know, so this all lined up there, you know, like, okay, well, let me, let me see where this guy lived. And sure enough, he lived two blocks, only two blocks away from the corner where Janetta Palmer was last seen alive, the corner of Summit Road and High Point. So I could place him at the last spot she was ever seen alive. You know, she went to the Bladdis house. She asked for a ride. Donna's mother said no. And so was it conceivable then that she could have kept walking another two blocks and, you know, either saw Mike or knocked on his door and said, hey, you know, I really need a ride somewhere. And then something happened that resulted in her death. Absolutely. There was there was that that we were going on for a while. And then we got the email about the trapezoid. And then on top of that, another strange thing happened. Um, right after the book was released, uh, Mark and I, we went on a book tour, uh, in New Jersey and all of these weird New Jersey readers just kept coming to us and going, when are you going to give us some more true crime? I read the book in one sitting and, you know, there's so many other interesting cases. Have you heard of this case in Franklin? Have you heard of this case in Trenton? All this other stuff. And so I said to Mark, I said, you know, we've got like 40 issues to go through, to, to peruse through where we've covered true crime here and there, why don't we put together all of the best cases in one special issue? And he goes, yeah, yeah, do it up. So he gave me all of the uh, the issues that I didn't have, some of which were out of print. And for two months, I literally read every issue of We're New Jersey cover to cover multiple times, putting this thing together. And in one of the issues, I found a photograph. It, it, it sent a chill up my spine because I'm looking at this picture and the caption said, you know, stuff left by devil worshipers in this reservation in North Jersey in the 1990s. And it was a trapezoidal perimeter of broken branches and logs and an arrangement of stones in the middle. And it looked exactly like the newspaper account of what Jeanette was found in. So, you know, yes, Nilsen is still a suspect. And it is always the possibility that this was a serial killer or, you know, perhaps something happened, an accident happened at a party and some kids left her in the woods and never said anything about it. Um, that's a theme that's explored in, in my second book about the Ricky Casso case that's coming up um, in the fall. But there is also something now where we cannot disregard the satanic angle of this because we have a suspect that knew her picked her up when she was hitchhiking, dabbled in the occult, and lived two blocks away from where she was last seen the day she died. We have um, testimony from people familiar with occultism that the trapezoid is a significant figure in Levee and Satanism. And now we have photographic evidence from the 1990s, before we ever started looking at the De Palma case, of a similar arrangement that was allegedly found around her body being found in another reservation up in North Jersey. So, I mean, truth is stranger than fiction, right? I mean, you, you can't discount it. Jesse, I just want to take this time to thank you and your co-author, Mark Moran, for the wonderful book, The Death on the Devil's Teeth. All of your hard work in this investigation, this is certainly um, very well done, well put together. 
Yeah, it's great to shine light on a case. Well, hey, sure. And, you know, thank you guys, too, because, I mean, it, this is a little book. It came out on a, a little indie press, uh, Arcadia slash History Press. And, you know, now the word is getting out there to, you know, this this great loyal following you have. So hopefully we'll get some more tips coming in and, uh, you know, it will really shine a light on a case that was largely forgotten. And some people say intentionally so. So if you want to, if, if any of you listening want to follow where we're at with the case, where we're going with it, um, at We're New Jersey on multiple platforms. Uh, we're New Jersey is on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And if you want to follow me, I'm at J Pollock Author, J-P-O-L-L-A-C-K Author. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, I, I'm posting updates as they come in. And if you want to pick up a copy of the book, it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's on the Weird New Jersey website, weirdnewjersey.com. But yeah, wherever books are sold, it's Death on the Devil's Teeth. Well, thank you again for spending some time with us in the garage. Yeah, thank you so much, Jesse. Oh, no, and, and thank you so much for having me on and, and picking this case to talk about. It really means a lot. I want to thank everybody out there, everybody in the True Crime Garage Army for helping spread the word about the show, and more importantly, spreading the word about each of these cases that we cover each week, sharing them on social media. You know, the more eyes and ears that these cases reach, the better chance, the better hope that we have of someday providing a lead or solving one of these cases. Yeah, and we've been contacted by a lot of law enforcement and people that are working other cases that said, hey, because you covered this and because of your audience and because of your amazing listeners, we've actually got new leads to work on. Mm -hmm. And you know what's funny, Captain, is one of the things that we covered during this series, the John List case, Yeah, it was solved through crowdsourcing. Yeah, so. it, was, it was considered one of the worst crimes of, of that decade and solved after 17 and a half years through crowdsourcing. So it is possible... And we thank everybody for helping out the garage. We thank you for listening, subscribing, and telling a friend. All right. So it's time for me to tell them the big news. Mm, I, I actually, I don't think we're allowed to talk about that yet. Okay. Well, <laughs> well sorry about that. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Captain. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until next week, be good, be kind, and don't litter. you are bpm's high sweat dripping body moving tongue panting you're working hard real hard and you're thirsty you need vitamins nutrients for peak performance and energy and your plants do too Aww. i mean just look at the little guy water soluble plant food from miracle grow is full of essential nutrients just a little scoop into your watering can and boom instant feeding and bigger more beautiful plants it's kind of like a sports drink for your plants you may have to suffer from heat but your plants do not 